Left. Right. All right, we are discussing the most recent Republican debate. So choose your favorite Republican. Let's see who wins. I think you like this episode if you are Republican or Democrat. So let me know in the comments who you think won this debate. This is Sip Talk. Grab a drink and enjoy. All right, we are live. This is Sip Talk episode 226. Who is the best Republican? My name is Justin DiGiulio, joined by my colleague James, the Bosnator Boswell, philosopher, philanderer, philanthropist. Philatelist. Philatelist, yeah. I'm, I'm at it. Yeah, I'm out of pH words. Uh, coming at you from Sip Talk headquarters atop our sacred mountain, broadcasting from our sacred antenna. James, how's things hanging down there? Uh, things are pretty good down here. Uh, we finally had like two days where the humidity wasn't ridiculous and it's going to immediately stop start like tomorrow. No, but, like, I went outside yesterday. It was like 88 or 89 degrees, but I was like, this is kind of nice. It's we got the we got the humidity up here. So, um, so look, we we narrowly escaped a topic about OnlyFans today, uh, and instead we're covering a recap of the Republican debate from last night. So, uh, both of them are really tough topics to talk about. Really, uh, I think one's easier than the other. Um, I did. I just did a little I also research. Don't know how we get an hour out of OnlyFans? Well, I think most people average about seven minutes. <laughs> um, I wanted to share some stats I just pulled up though prior to us ta- deciding on this because I yeah, honestly I don't know too much about OnlyFans. I get the general gist of it, but I don't I don't think anybody should be paying money for porn in the year 2023. Just my opinion. Um, yeah, but, but I mean, if you want to spend money on porn, then like eh. there you go. Uh, but you know, Rosh uh, was saying that these women are making lots of money. So I just did a, a little search, and it's only said, a select few are. Most accounts take home less than one hundred and forty-five dollars per month. Uh, the average is around one hundred and eighty, but uh, but most around one hundred and forty-five. Uh, the top ten percent of OnlyFans content creators make over a thousand dollars per month. The, so still not 90, 90, 90% making less than $1,000 per month. The top 1% make more than 6000 and the top 0.1% make over 100000 per month. Right. So if you're a 1 in 1,000 account, then you can make a living on it. So uh, the average subscription cost is $7.20, and the average account has 21 fans. So I think... In order to be a real money maker, you either need to come to the table with a lot of followers or be able to create a lot of followers. However, I think the risk would be if you have an unsuccessful account, then you just kind of have this content that maybe I guess you can maybe take it down. I don't I don't I don't know. In that yeah, way. as we know, it's easier to delete things from the Internet. Mm hmm. Yeah, the Internet doesn't store things and people can't make copies of things. Thank God. Nope. Um, so either way, that's that's the stats I wanted to include in the OnlyFans. I don't think we have an episode on it. Uh, but I don't know. I'd say job done. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm sure, you know, with some research, we could go a lot further into that topic. Um, like, most, like most things related to OnlyFans, we finished in record time. <laughs> um, so what we're going to we're going to be doing tonight is we're going to be looking at the questions from the debate last night and seeing more or less, I guess, how we would answer them or kind of. Yeah, that's the idea. I didn't watch the debate. I actually didn't even know the debate. I've been, I have been trying to avoid the news for the last couple of months um, because it just, it just puts me in a bad mood listening to the news. So I've really been avoiding it Been just listening to uh, music, podcasts, audio books, and, you know, I get a little bit of the news through some podcasts, but I really, I still even try to avoid those. So where do we start? Also, I'm trying not to drink so much. So I engaged a uh, seltzer to drink along with a glass of scotch. 
Is that scotch watered down at all? <laughs> no, by the end of the podcast, I'm I'm a little toasty. <laughs> uh, I need to get a smaller bottle to be able to bring over here, but every everything's in flux right now. Um, all right, where do we start here? Uh, we start with question one. Question one, hit me. Uh, the song "Rich Men of Rich Men North of Richmond" is resonating with the country right now. Why do you think that is? So, have you heard the song? No, I have not. How, how have you not heard the song? Because um, I yeah. watched the debate. <laughs> I I just as soon as I saw that question, I typed the song into Google and uh, I listened to it. It's it's borderline country music. I, I mean, it's very country music in my opinion, but it's not a bad song. I'm not a country music fan, uh, but I will say it's not a bad song. It's from this artist called Oliver Anthony, who's a, a red haired guy, and he gets mighty red in the face when he's singing. That was one thing that uh, struck me during the song. But but lyrically, uh, wasn't a bad song at all. Are you listening to it now and not listening to me? No, I'm going to look at the lyrics really quick. <laughs> um, Speed run the song. But it's really, it's about the struggle of the middle class. And, you know, one of the lines is how he's working overtime and getting taxed so much, which anybody who works overtime can tell you. Minor internet incident. This will uh, cause some issues when I'm editing this episode. But <laughs> let's get back to the question. Why is the song Rich Men North of Richmond resonating with the country right now. And this is a song by Oliver Anthony. So you just read through the lyrics of the song while we were offline. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what was your take home from this song? Uh, my take home is that the government is disconnected from what the people actually want. And that it's the government is giving aid to people that don't need it and not giving aid to the people that do it, basically the government's priorities are completely screwed up and the people that live and work in Washington DC are in something of a bubble where they can ignore the problems that they create or just ignore that problems exist and do whatever they want because what? they're rich and who cares well, rich, rich men north of Richmond, Richmond, Virginia is directly south of D.C. And, you know, there's some lines in the song that that really hit me. This, to me, it felt like the struggle of the middle class, which right now they need help. And the country really relies on the middle class. The middle class is the biggest tax base of the country. And it pays for all the social services that basically cover the poor people. Uh, and people who are on welfare and things like that. He talks about welfare. He talks about working overtime and getting taxed uh, effectively left, right, and center. And I was saying, I don't know if you caught any of this before we cut off. I was saying how anybody who works overtime looks at their check and realizes how much more tax is on their overtime work. It's yeah, but that's that's not real. In, in what sense? What do you mean it's not real? <sighs> because... Their paycheck, Just, is, is there, they're, whether they're what I'm telling you is that, like, when you file your tax return, there's no difference between overtime wages and regular wages. So, like, if you have a higher percentage of your paycheck withheld because some of it was overtime, well, when you file your tax return, that just means that your refund is likely to be higher potentially, but your paycheck week to week is lower. And, and that's, I think, you know, when you're living paycheck to paycheck, that's really... I mean, I could explain the intricacies of how this works if you'd like to hear. I, I, I understand what you're getting at, but at the end of the day, the paycheck, and I'm sure you'd agree, is still lower. The paycheck is going to be higher if you worked overtime than if you didn't work overtime. It's just a slightly higher percentage of your earnings will be withheld because your overall paycheck was larger. And so the... It, on that week or that's on that pay period, you're, because you're making more money on that pay period, it's going to probably be withheld as though you're in a higher tax bracket than you actually are. So exactly. then when you go and file your tax return and you're in a lower tax bracket than that individual paycheck saw, then that the portion that you overpaid in taxes gets refunded to you. So 
it's not like that money just goes away. It just means that you have to wait for it when you file your taxes. Exactly. So week to week, your paychecks are, I mean, obviously you're making more in overtime, but if you count on the overtime, then that tax is, is really, really annoying. Uh, it also didn't feel so much like a political song. It didn't, it didn't feel too right leaning. And I know this is a Republican national debate and it's probably resonating with a lot of Republicans, uh, but it didn't feel that right leaning to me. And, well, there was there was one part about it that <laughs> felt a little right leaning, but it's something that I think people on the left could understand, which or what? should understand. Where he talks about how, like, if you're obese and you're getting food stamps, or like yeah. if you're on welfare and you're like welfare shouldn't be paying for your fudge. Well, he he, he talked about there's starving people in the streets and there's obese people milking the welfare system. And 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 that's and we'll get further down the line with these questions from the debate last night about all these kind of holes in the system and loopholes in the system and, and issues with government. Should we hit the next? Uh, someone says I'm more disconnected from the public than the government. That may be true, but my job is not to be connected to the public. Well, and I think I think that's what you know, when we have disagreements in this conversation, a lot of times I think. I'm echoing from the people that I see every day and, and, and what I see on social media. And, and I think the big disconnect is I interact with a lot more people on a regular basis. So, you know, when I tell you, it's, it's probably a safe bet that you interact with more people in two days than I do in a month. I I would, I would probably agree with that. Um, You know what? I'd argue probably one day. I think it, it it would be close with one day, but to, like it would be somewhere between one and two days that you would break through. Um, I mean, there's sometimes by by two o'clock in the afternoon, I've I've texted more than fifty people, like not fifty texts, but like fifty different people. So just uh, before I was playing in the pool leagues and going to a bar once a week, and like. <laughs> Then, then, like the one day would deeper. What you're digging yourself deeper? I feel like no, no. I'm saying that, like, by the fact that I'm going to a bar once a week to play in pool league, that's what like that's what bring me over the one day. (laughs) Um, so uh, fuck, I totally lost my train of thought. Oh, but that's when I'm telling you, like, the working overtime and then you know getting taxed higher. That a lot of people work overtime, and for a lot of people, that really fucking stings. It's like people who work a salary job and then get commission and their commissions get, get taxed really hard. I mean, I see that. I, um, I get a bonus every once in a while on my check for gain on sale on our mortgages. And when I do like my paycheck is not appreciably higher, even though the bonus is there because like I get taxed a lot more on that bonus because it kicks up it, it kicks me into a different tax bracket for withholding purposes on that paycheck. Now imagine if that bonus wasn't just for a mortgage, but it was for six additional hours of work. That that it's the same thing. Well, are you, are you putting the, either way? We got to get to the next question. Um, I don't know what it takes to do a mortgage, so that's not that's not. Well, you work in real estate. You really I mean, should. I, I sort of do. I sort of do. Um, all right. Question two. What steps should be taken to reduce the size of government? So I think the first thing we need to do is reduce the amount of money that we're spending on the military. Like that's our single biggest elective expense because like Social Security and Medicare are the biggest expenses, but those were kind of tied to there's not a ton that we can do to reduce the spending on those. There's little things here and there, but like we spend a ridiculous amount on the military and any ask anybody who has worked in the military and say, how much did the military waste that you saw? And they will give you an earful in terms of like requisitioning things that they didn't need because they knew that if they didn't, then their budget was going to go down the next year. And so like, and overpaying for things because of kickbacks with contractors and, and whatnot. So I think that there's a tremendous amount of fraud and waste in the military but that can be I eliminated. I think that 
Look, hold on. on. On on that note, though, I I don't think it's just the military. I think there's a lot of fraud and waste and bullshit bureaucracy that happens everywhere. Okay. And I think I think what we don't have is we don't have anybody really looking at these programs and 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 potentially just redesigning them from the from the ground up. We just spend more money to make the program better, and that money just goes wash as well. Okay, but hear me out. Is if we accept, uh, I'm going to make up a number here. This is not representative of what the reality is. But let's say that 10% of the military budget is fraud and waste, right? Mm-hmm. And let's say that that 10% is also the same in the Social Security Administration or the FDA or the Department of Agriculture. Name a department, right? And let's just say that 10%, right? Mm-hmm. So if you've got a military budget that's close to a trillion dollars or a department of education budget that's maybe 75 billion then if you can tackle the waste and fraud in the biggest categories then you're going to be making more of an impact than by trying to take the it, it would probably take as much or it would probably take about the same amount of work to deal with waste and fraud in the smaller departments but you're going to get much less for it so, so- go for the biggest fish first I I agree with you that the government spends money recklessly, especially in the military. I think I think the issue isn't so much how much money we spend, but how poorly we spend it. But the question is, what steps should be taken to reduce the size of the government? Well, and, that, that's and reducing we, the size. If we can reduce the size of our military, like we, we our military is way bigger than we need it to be. And I'm not saying eliminate the military. It's necessary. I'm saying reduce it. So well, that's a big impact on the size of government is reducing the size of the military. What I'm saying is we need to be taking a lot of uh, our expenditures and be looking at the systems. And I think we need to be rebuilding these systems from the ground up rather than putting more money into them to fix them. So we're just trying to fix the system as it is. So, you know, when you take the defense spending uh, Rosh is saying it's uh, $816 billion for the yep. Department of, of Defense, which is almost a trillion bucks, which, I mean, it really isn't. It's almost $200 billion away from a trillion bucks, but it, it looks awfully close. Um, I don't think we're getting, I think that money is literally just being washed down the drain and the drain just being the pockets of super wealthy people, people who are already super wealthy. So, again, we just have no idea, really, where that money is going. So, But in the military, in some audits, has also said, we have no idea where that money well, is. I mean, if the audit is, is, you know, running dry, that really says a lot. Because anybody who's really engaging in an audit is probably someone who loves auditing. And it's probably someone who thinks like, like you do. Um, and is not going to accept we don't know where it went for an answer. When <laughs> I worked at the firm, when I worked at the accounting firm... Um, I was in an auditing training meeting with two of the partners, right? And one of them was talking about going to a conference on auditing. And he was talking, he's like, and, and he's an auditor. And, but he was talking about like the kinds of people that go to auditing conferences. And he's just like, I've never been in a bigger, in, in a room with a bigger group of nerds. No, no shit. Um, and this is a guy who is good at auditing and knows his stuff, but like, I think deep down doesn't have the personality of an auditor in the way that you think of. Well, auditors. I think I think I think auditing, you know, might be a good way to reduce the size of the government. Is really having uh, a lot more transparency and understanding where money is being spent in the government and and what's being truly wasted. Uh, yeah, let's let's hit the next question here. Fire away. Polls consistently show that young people's number one issue is climate change. How would you, as both president of the United States and leader of the Republican Party, calm their fears that the Republican Party doesn't care about climate change? Yes, James, how would you, as president of the United States and head of the Republican Party? (laughs) Um, I copied and pasted that one directly (laughs) from the debate transcript. But the Um, question is, how do you handle climate change? So as a Republican leader. Uh, I would say as as a leader, because it doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican, the climate doesn't care. Uh, yeah, let me. I mean, it's really simple is you 
implement a carbon tax where industries that are carbon intensive have to start paying for the carbon that they emit in in economics carbon emissions are what would be what are classified as an externality do you know what that is i'm sorry say that again i'm just doing a little research here on the on the right do you know what the word externality means in the field of economics uh laid on me um basically it's a negative impact from operating your business and here's an example let's say you run a chemical plant right and the chemical plant happens to like periodically leak chemicals into the soil and some of that gets into the groundwater right now if the chemical plant isn't fined or forced to clean up this mess that they create by operating then well somebody's gonna have to pay for that either the community pays for it in in the negative health effects that it has and having to go to the doctor and pay for like cancer treatments and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Or somebody has to pay for cleaning up the rivers and the groundwater and getting the chemicals out. And so if the chemical plant isn't forced to pay for this, then they're basically able to profit off of the fact that, that they're not responsible for the negative externalities that they create. So, you can externalities you can you can charge for externalities and carbon tax is one of the ways to do that and so you have to be able to quantify it and we've actually gotten pretty good at quantifying carbon you can right because like if you're if you're running a factory that runs heavy machinery that creates a lot of carbon and stuff like right now that's not really taxed the only way that that's taxed is indirectly of like if you have to buy fuel or something then there's the excise tax on fuel that you pay for but okay, like, so, so let me just wrap it up. You got a way of saying things quite long wordedly. I want to make uh, sure that people understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> the problem is sometimes it, let me let me just paraphrase. You would uh, you place a carbon tax uh, on businesses, businesses only. I'd place a car. I'd place a universal carbon tax. And the thing is, like, it's going to be borne primarily by businesses because businesses are the most responsible for carbon um, carbon emissions. Like, yes, you and I are responsible for carbon emissions, but like business carbon emissions dwarf consumer carbon emissions. Obviously, obviously. So make everybody pay for it, but make everybody pay for it in proportion to how much they produce. I mean, the argument against that is that the cost of goods is going to continue to go up. Yeah, that's fine. It, it has to because... Again, but I, if we I think, don't pay for it now, we're going to pay for it more later. I, By not think, addressing yeah. the externality today, it's going to cost us way more in the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's the ultimate argument as well, that, you know, cost of goods can go up or just we can continue to kill the earth. Um, but there were some Republicans completely denying climate change altogether, calling it a, a climate change hoax. Yeah, Ramaswamy, who is an utter clown. <laughs> that's kind of what the I. The only up. thing that I took away from the debate that I would consider a positive was how it seemed like everybody on stage hated Vivek, <laughs> and, um, and, like, and they weren't even nice about it. They just like they made it very clear that they could not stand this guy, and I loved it. I mean, I knew nothing. I knew nothing about any of the candidates. I did not watch the debate. I watched a little recap today. He's uh, a sleazy con man. I mean, he just. He didn't look very presidential. I was looking at these guys saying, yeah, who looks presidential? Who, you know, who sounds presidential? Uh, not him. Uh, all right. Let's hit question number four here. I'll let, I'll, I'll let you. Read. Oh, you didn't answer question. Number, the, the third one. How, how do you deal with uh, climate change? How do you deal with climate change? Well, uh, hmm. I liked your answer, by the way. I hadn't even you just ran right into the answer. I hadn't even thought about an answer. Uh Yeah, carbon carbon tax is a good one. Uh, I think we just really, I think also to be working with industrialized countries that we rely on to produce a lot of our goods, specifically In, India and China. Yeah, and that was actually mentioned in the debate um, oh, correctly. I that. <laughs> All right, uh, but I, but I think you know we 
we outsource a lot of this so we can get away with without paying that much carbon tax should there be a carbon tax um and and i think we'd see a lot more businesses leave the u.s if we imposed a carbon tax only here true they'd, they'd go to places like india and china right and then so, and that's just shifting the externality outside of our borders the externality still exists but that's and why the I'm problem saying, that's why i'm saying we would need to work with these other countries as well to come up with a solution that that works for everybody here's here's a good analogy like if we have if we stop emitting so much carbon but we just move those industries to india and china that are going to just emit as much or more carbon yeah, probably it's more. like having a no smoking section in a restaurant you sit on one side of the restaurant and you sit in the no smoking sign uh, side the smoking side you can still smell yeah it doesn't smell as bad though it doesn't smell as bad but like a, a no smoking section in a restaurant is like a no peeing section in a pool. <laughs> um, all right. Next question. Number four. How do you see your party? How do you say to your party and to your state, which today confirmed a six week abortion law as well, uh, especially the impact on women? Uh, I must have read this question. This wrong. was a question that was posed to Nikki Haley, basically saying what what is your stance on abortion and what do you tell women about that? Uh yeah, and apparently that day they confirmed a six-week abortion law. Yep. Yeah, uh, the Supreme Court in South Carolina um, allowed a six-week abortion law to go into effect. Um, what's your reminder? Six weeks into being pregnant is not a very long time whatsoever. Best case scenario, you're going to know for about a week and a half before the time runs out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Uh, this is a difficult question for you or I to answer, but I think the question is as a Republican, uh, as a member of the Republican party, how do you deal with abortion law? Well, I'm not going to answer as a Republican. I'm going to answer as myself and I'm going to say, let the medical community determine how to do, how to deal with this and stop with these laws that interfere between people and their doctors. So I'm going to take a slightly more centrist approach to it and say, why don't we put the laws up to a vote? So right now, we, we're, most of the abortion laws are not being voted on. What's happened is our politicians who we voted into office are making the laws. We're not actually putting these laws on the ballot. Uh, and, and most people uh, don't support banning abortion. You know what happens when these laws get put up on to like a general election vote? They don't go into place. People support abortion rights. Yeah. It, I mean, that's exactly the case. So, again, I'm taking a more centrist uh, approach than you are. But uh, I don't even think my my mine is all that extreme of how about we let doctors who spent their entire lives learning about this shit? How about we let them decide? Well, that's that's more left leaning, James. That's oh, yeah, because weird. we trust expertise. Um. Next question. I'll let you read this one because I'm, I'm reading all these here and you type. Them. All right. Um, and this is related to crime increases in cities. How much of what we're seeing happening around this country with crime in the cities is a result of the COVID lockdowns? And this was asked in Mike Penn. So it says, was your administration like partially to blame for how we got here? So I want to kind of rephrase the question a little bit to make it easier for us to talk about, which is why are we seeing increases in crime in cities? What is going on in American cities right now and how do we fix it? Well, let's just go back to the question being about coronavirus lockdowns and, and what effect they had on, on homelessness. So, I can tell you from someone who spends a lot of time around not just homelessness, but mentally unstable people, people who are using drugs, uh, people in tents out in the street, people passed out on the street that literally look like they're dead. Uh, actually, there was somebody that was on the sidewalk for like 20 hours the other day that was actually completely dead for 20 hours and people just walked by them, um, give or take a couple of hours. But it was it was all day long. Um, I don't actually think the lockdowns had that much to do with the drug addiction and the homelessness. I think 
it drew more attention to it, but it was always there. I don't think it's necessarily the lockdowns like made people homeless. It made people more addicted to drugs. Uh, I just think that we saw more of them in the streets. I noticed right off the bat, and it seemed to me that because there was less people walking up and down the streets, and the biggest thing you know about being homeless is you sit in the streets, um, and it's really difficult to sit in the streets when people are like, well, basically kick in the face to, because you're on the middle of the sidewalk. Well, like, it's also like, let's say in a given block, you have 10, 10 homeless people, right? Well, but but imagine you have you have uh, one hundred and forty thousand people that walk down that block every day. Right. So this is where I'm going. It's like if you've yeah. got ten homeless people and there are constantly two hundred people walking up and down the block, you don't see those homeless people very much. If there's two people walking up and down that block, then you see two walkers and ten homeless people. But but it also allows another ten homeless people to camp out there too, because it's a safer place for for them to stay. So I think. I don't think necessarily coronavirus lockdowns uh, impacted the homeless and drug addiction population so much. I think it just exacerbated a problem that we already have, and that's that we don't have mental health facilities and our social welfare systems are not psychiatric hospitals. And that's how we're using them right now. And our hospitals are also not psychiatric, psychiatric hospitals. Um, nor are our jails. So these people aren't getting treated for their actual drug addictions and for their psychiatric issues. And that's why a lot of them are homeless. The face of homelessness is not Sally, mother of two, who's, you know, bum on her luck because she, she lost her job at the factory. She's not the face of homelessness. I'm not saying there aren't instances of people like Sally. The vast majority of the homeless people that you see, and when you call it face, it's because that's what you see, are the mentally ill and the drug addicted population. And we need to be actually dealing with those. I don't think the lockdowns had anything to do with that. I don't I didn't support the lockdowns, by the way, but I don't I don't think it caused this issue that we have right now. I'm gonna say that I think the lockdowns had a small impact on it because you have like if you think about where in cities do homeless people tend to spend most of their time? The busier touristic areas? No. Like, they might go to, like, the more traveled areas during the day to panhandle. But, like, they spend most of their time in areas where they're not going to be bothered. Because why would they want to, like, so they're not going to want to be in an area that has a high police presence. They're not going to want to be in an area that has a high people presence. Because almost people in New York City don't seem to worry about police too much. Police don't seem to worry about them too much. I, I got, you, I got, a, I got a, uh, a two point violation on my license for turning around on a one. Yeah, I know. We, we, we've heard I was this being story. attacked by a homeless person. So, but, well, I don't know where you're going with this. That's where I'm going with this is like having spent time in Sacramento, California, that has a really bad homelessness problem, and having spent time in New York City, and Charleston has a homelessness problem, and San Diego has a homelessness problem. Charleston, probably the least of all of them, but Charleston, it's definitely here. Right. And so, so the and so my point is that homeless people tend to like try and find places to set up their camps where it's not super high traffic areas because it's their 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 camp, so to speak, is less likely to get disrupted the farther the way away they are from where non homeless people spend their time, and so. When when the lockdowns happened, it basically turned the entire city into an area that a homeless person could feel safe because nobody was going anywhere. So instead of camping on the edges of town, why not camp in the middle where it's easier to get to things? And by the way, the police aren't really out. Nobody's really out. So no one's going to bother me if I camp in a place that I wasn't able to camp before. Okay, so where so, are you going with this? How did the lockdowns affect the homeless? The lockdowns affected it by increasing the parts of the city that a homeless person would be comfortable camping in. You can think about it as just like the, it allowed homeless infiltration into the centers of cities. So I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. We don't really have an outside or city limits 
of, of New York City. Most of the coastline of the city is pretty populated, big buildings. Uh, and then uptown in the Harlem area, there's really not any homeless people up there. It's, it's mostly the midtown area. So New York's different, though. But I'm telling you, having observed the way homeless people behave and, and organize and live their lives in other cities, I think New York is kind of different than a lot of other major cities where in Charleston in Sacramento and San Diego, yes, you'll find homeless people practically anywhere, but where do they, te- where do they group and congregate? And it's not in the centers of cities. Well, New York is definitely different in that respect. Uh, question number six, if former president Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? <laughs> uh, and they actually asked for a show of hands. And yeah, only, you, only and two you should of them watch the video of it yeah. because, like, half the half the stage is looking at the other half of the stage to see what they're going to do. Uh, yeah, yeah, but uh, all but two raised their hand saying that they would support him as the party's choice, even though they are his direct competitors. Yeah, um, the only two that didn't raise their hands were Asa Hutchinson and Chris Christie. Oh, Chris Christie, yeah. Um, so obviously you and I would not support him, whether he's convicted or not in the court of law. Uh, do you know also, though, last night, even though he wasn't part of this debate, he did do a Tucker Carlson one on one interview. Yeah, I watched the debate and like that's as masochistic as I was willing to go. I couldn't bring myself to watch Trump and Tucker Carlson go back and forth for an hour. Um, but I guarantee it was better for him to be talking with Tucker Carlson than it would have been for him to be on that stage. So because he just would have been being attacked by everybody else. So uh, well played by him last night. Well, yeah, I think him skipping the debate was a smart move. Um, and I actually want to share a theory that I have on Trump. But like, it was a smart move because he really didn't have anything to gain from going to the debate, but he had a lot to lose. So, mm-hmm. um, but I have a theory on Trump because like, I've said this a number of times and I'll say it again. I think Trump is a profoundly stupid person. <laughs> but he has certain skills he, he like i think he his he's quite good at reading a room he's quite good at reading social situations and he's developed a certain charisma to him that makes him interesting to watch right sure and so i i put these two together so many years ago when i was a substitute teacher i there was one year where i was teaching in one room and I, like, I started off the year day one. They're like, we need you to sub this. I was like, this is not a good situation if you're asking me to sub for, for a room day one. But the room next to uh, mine was kind of like the partner room with mine. It was a special education setting. And I was running run room. And the other room had a brand new teacher in it who I thought was pretty cute. All right. And so you got, you got 30 seconds left. Go ahead. Anyways. Her and I were kind of like we we start we went on a few dates, but nothing ever happened. Like it, it, it fizzled out. But we had some chemistry. We got along well. So, and so while were we were teaching, you were dating the special ed student. Yeah, the student. <laughs> Sorry, did it good. Um, and so while while we were in school, the two of us were professional with each other because why wouldn't we be? But what I noticed was that the kids in the classroom asked if we were dating and we had done nothing to give any indication that there was anything going on between the two of us. But I think that they were able to pick up that there was some chemistry between the two of us. And my theory is that for kids that are lower on the intelligence spectrum, one of the ways that they've adapted to the world is getting better at reading social situations, because if they can't think their way through something, they learn to, Watch what smart people do and do that. And the kids, so I thought that the kids had a very high social intelligence because they were able to pick up on something that the two of us were absolutely not trying to broadcast. And so I think Trump is an example of that. He's an incredibly stupid person. And the way he's made up for his lack of intelligence has been a has been through reading social situations and finding ways to navigate through them expertly. Yeah, uh, I will buy. I will buy that. 
you know, I I have in my head thought, man, this guy is either really fucking dumb or really fucking brilliant. But I can't find I can't justify in any of his actions that he's that brilliant. He just he just always ends up on top for the most part. And he's been through a lot of shit. So I don't I don't know how he just continues to maybe it's because of his uh, BMI. He just floats to the top. I don't know. Um, but but he does pretty well, which just which always makes you think in the back of your mind, you know, he must have accounted for this and that. He must have been playing chess and he must have had the forethought. But I don't think that's possible. Uh, on to the next question. I like my theory. I, I mean, it's it's a it's an interesting theory. I don't necessarily know that gets you that far again, that which is why I think maybe there's some sheer brilliance to this guy. No, uh, next, next question. Not giving him that credit. The administration is now asking Congress for. A twenty-four billion, twenty-four billion more, uh, regardless of the specific specifics of the plan, is uh, is there anyone on the stage? That, oh, so this is for Ukraine. Is yes. there anyone on the stage who would not support the increase in funding for the Ukraine? So, or uh, Congress is now offering uh, twenty-four billion, regardless of what it's for, to Ukraine. Would anyone not support that? Yeah, and larger, largely the question is, do you support aid to Ukraine? And if so, is there a limit? I mean, to me, it just feels like now we are fighting a war with Russia via Ukraine. And, and we're trying to stay out of it by just funding them. Well, I mean, that's pretty much what it is. It's exactly what it is. And I, can't I don't have a problem with it. I think that's money well spent. Well, not not having specifics of what's happening with that money, I think, is very irresponsible. And we're getting one version of, of what's going on between Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, this is a Fox News host phrasing the question. So how much of that $24 billion is for nebulous things? Who knows? Like, it could actually be that, like, it's well accounted for. We don't really know. That's but, their messaging. But we all, My but view we is, as long as we know what the $24 billion is going for, this many guns, this many missiles, whatever then we should be sending as much weaponry and, and machinery and whatnot to Ukraine as possible because Ukraine winning the war in Russia is really imperative for democracy in Western Europe True. and global stability, I would argue. Yeah, I want, I want, who else is spending or sending money to Ukraine? Uh, pretty much all of Western Europe. Um, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, um, Germany and Poland have probably been the ones that have put the most out there, but France and England aren't too far behind. All right. Uh, Spain's been contributing a bit. Um, I think Italy, I don't know how much Italy's doing I mean, some effect effectively. We have a world war against Russia, you know, just, just via funding through the Ukraine. I mean, that's real. That's real. If, if we have the vast majority of the world sending money to Ukraine, I, I, I'm curious who is supporting Russia on the back end. Um, Iran. Sort of, kind of I mean, China, but not I, really. I don't I don't really I, I don't, we don't need to dig into it. I was just just posing the, the thought. But um, yeah, it's. It's really Russia is kind of on its own. They're getting a little bit of help from China. They're getting a fair bit of help from Iran. But Russia, Russia has very few friends. And the thing that's so stupid about this is like if Russia were to leave Ukraine tomorrow and just kind of give back Crimea that they took in 2014 or 2015 and leave and leave, like let Ukraine restore its borders, like the world would move pretty quickly to forgive Russia. End of story. Mm -hmm. just Russia Russia is just like, they're, they're pissing away so much wealth and global standing on Putin's quixotic quest to restore the USSR. All right. Next question here. Uh, and this is directed to, uh, the governor of uh, uh, North Dakota? Yes. Uh, uh, Doug Burgum. Uh, so the question is, how would you deter China as a president, Burgum? So, I mean, I... I, I so the question is, how would, you, how would you deter China as a president, Boswell? 
Yeah, and it's a real. That's I, I thought that that was the most difficult question to answer the debate because, like, we have this odd relationship with China where we need them for a lot of things, but their behavior towards their own citizens and towards their regional neighbors, like Vietnam, the Philippines, Japan, South Korea, the rest of the countries in Southeast Asia is really poor and their record on human rights is abysmal. And so it's tough because we need to be able to call them out on the genocide that they're committing against the Uyghurs. And we need to call them out on their attempts to annex the South China Sea and their terrible record on the environment. But at the same time, they're a huge trading partner. And our economy depends so heavily on Chinese goods. Yeah. I I think very clearly. And I, I get into this argument with some, like, uh, the, the captain of my pool team is this old dude from New York City, and he talks about how we're going to go to war with China. And I'm just like, no, we're not going to do that. China and the United States know that if there were ever to be, like, a full-out war between U.S. and China, both would lose. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's, that's very clear. Uh, the question is, we're already kind of both losing, you know, uh, and and I actually feel like that we have outsourced so much of what's crucial to our daily lives to China that we already have lost the upper hand. Obviously, China depends on us as well. But they do. But also the rest of the world that, that they can produce for in time. It's just right now we're their biggest customer. So, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the consumerist mentality of the American hasn't spread to the rest of the world but really once you get a taste of ordering some shit on amazon and getting it the next day it it's really tough to pass that up so and rosh says when we say that we depend economically on china when will morals prevail instead of self-gain and interest and the answer is you can't have you can't have everything and like it, it's it's completely unfeasible for us to just say that we're going to be cutting economic ties with China because of their human rights record and all the other things that they're doing wrong. And so what we have to do is, I mean, I think China is the is by far the most complicated and difficult foreign policy question looming over the United States. Well, I, you know it. It would be nice to see the U.S. take back some industry, but I don't think that we can do that. I don't think we're in a place that we can do that. I don't. We think absolutely can't. We can afford to pay the wages. You know, the cost yeah. of an iPhone goes from a thousand dollars to twenty-five thousand dollars really quickly when you account for right U.S. wages. You've got workers in China that might be making like a hundred bucks a month or something. And to have the same kind of manufacturing quality done in the United States, you'd probably have to be paying those same workers like probably somewhere between like five and eight thousand dollars a month. I mean, if it was justified how much they were working and and for a lot sometimes the skills that they bring to the table as well. It's just uh, American labor cannot compete on price against China. Uh, it just like, can't. And then when you introduce unions and things like that, uh, it it just doesn't make sense here. The, so you know, so the uh, the next best solution would be that we take over a a country and then just use them, uh, you know, for the production of our goods. Well, that's kind of what happened in like the eighteen hundreds with the circles of influence in China. You know, have to enlighten me. Uh, where like various European countries like just kind of established areas in China that they controlled. And so like they would use Chinese labor and like they used they they, they used opium to kind of su- suppress the population because Chinese like they, they just pushed opium on the populace to keep them sedate and keep them working. But basically every Western European imperialist country had some sphere of influence in China. And there was kind of a gentleman's agreement among those countries 
that like, all right, we get this part, you get that part. We're not going to mess with you if you don't mess with us. And like the Chinese people suffered because they, it, it was like really just a step above slavery, what they were doing. Yeah. And, and opium dependency doesn't end well. Yeah. And so like part of what happened in like the early 1900s and like the Chinese revolution with Mao was like him consolidating power and, and getting rid of Western influence in China. Now there, there is a tremendous human cost to the Chinese revolution that we're still seeing today. But like at this point, China has well overcome the barrier to like, being independent where I don't know again like going back to the United States versus China in a war even if you're to get the entire rest of the world to fight against China in a war nobody wins that's a tough question I'd like to move on to the next couple but, questions because we yeah, got just, we I got we got two more like dealing with China is by far the most complicated task set forth upon any US president so like that's a hard question to answer, and there's not really any good answer to it. No, it's a it's a very dangerous uh, uh, which is a thing to deal with, really. All right, next question. The nation's report card was the weakest ever for American school children, exposing chronic chronic absenteeism, deep declines for reading and math for fifteen year olds and thirteen year olds. Uh, but as president, would you have the responsibility to fix this as we see it? It's an interestingly phrased question. Yeah, it's a weird question, but basically it's our schools suck right now. Why and how are you going to fix it? Yeah. And what are your thoughts, James? Um, first thing that we need to do is increase funding for teachers. Nobody wants to teach right now because the job is thankless and the pay is terrible, and the entry requirements are really high and expensive because you basically need a graduate degree to be, to be able to teach. And in most fields, getting a grad degree, if you're working with a grad degree in practically any field besides teaching, you're making about double what you would if you were, making, if you were teaching. So there's not much incentive for people to become teachers. Teachers are treated terribly in this country. And the way you attract more talent and better talent to a field is increased pay. So that's the first step is increase the number of teachers we have and pay them better. Second thing that we do is we increase the, like, we, we increase the standards by which we hold students to. And I saw this firsthand when I was teaching that there were a number of students that I worked with that, did not meet the standards for whatever grade they were in that would get passed on to the next. And I can tell you that even though I wasn't there the next year, I can practically guarantee that the student that didn't meet seventh grade standards when it came to the end of eighth grade, damn, damn near, damn near certain was not meeting eighth grade standards and probably got pushed into ninth grade. So we are graduating students that aren't meeting the standards. So we need to hold students to standards and we, and, and when students don't meet the standards, they need to be held back and they need to be able to pass. They need to be there until they can pass the standards. We need accountability on the teacher side. We need accountability on the student side. We need funding for the teachers and we need to, when it comes to curriculum development, this should be something that is done by a panel of a nonpartisan, apolitical panel of experts in their fields, not political appointments. And I'm All saying right. that irrespective of whether they're Democrats or Republicans, is that curriculums and standards and tests should be designed by people with backgrounds in education and backgrounds in the fields in which those tests are on. So math, science, whatever, but we should not be having politicians writing curriculum. And that I, goes for Democrats I, or Republicans. I don't necessarily know that we should be using people with a background in education to, I think we need to be using the actual experts in those fields, not the people that have a background in education. Cause the, well, you need to have oversight, both. the oversight needs to come from the experts in those fields because that's where people I'm talking about going. curriculum design and testing is you need to have experts in the field so they can identify the key concepts. And then you need to have the people that are trained in education so that they can say, 
Because if you have like a quantum edu- educate to that level, right? Because if you have a quantum physicist and you say, okay, what should kids know about quantum physics? Like, it's it's entirely possible right. the quantum physicist is going to have a hard time figuring well, out what a not, senior in high school can sure, reasonably he's, know. He's not going to create the education plan, but I think he needs to be setting the expectations. What needs to be known at certain education levels. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and give you, give you right. my answer. I think you're I getting guess. to the same point that I'm at, which yeah, is I, you have experts in the field and you have experts in education. The two well, of them collaborate on a panel and I'm they gonna, come up with a curriculum. I'm going to give you my answer because it's a little bit different. I, and I think, I think we're in the same vein here. Um, but, you know, school choice is, is really big for a lot of people. And the reason is because a lot of schools suck. So you know, a lot of people on the on the right really are pushing for school choice, um, which I grant them. Nobody wants their kid to go to a, a bad school, you know, because. Yeah, but school choice is a proxy for religious schools. Well, but but really, well, school choice is people don't want to go to shitty schools. And uh, that's fine. But, I, but here's here's what I think needs to change in place of school choice. I think we need to be creating better schools and what makes a yeah, bad that's school. Easy what makes a bad school bad is that the funding comes from, from local taxpayers. So if you live in a poor area, you're going to get a poor education. Okay. If you live in a rich area, you're going to have access to more resources. So I think so, we really need to revisit the funding of schools. Uh, and that needs to be less localized and more federalized because if we're, if we're looking at education as a country, we need to be setting federal standards and we have some federal standards in education, but a lot, but, but, but obviously if you, if you go to a poor neighborhood and look at the school, it's a shit school. If you go to a rich neighborhood and look at the school, it's a great school, at least, at least the yeah. resource of the school. Right. So the if you were to do, the, uh, go ahead. Sorry. No, right. If you were to do a sort of redistribution of wealth of property taxes across the state to kind of normalize things a little bit and make it so that, the, the spending per student is closer from the top to the bottom, then that would solve some problems. But that, like that kind of goes in with like pay teachers more is put more money towards things that are going to help uh, students. But here's, here's the other issue though. And we talked about auditors and auditing earlier. Uh, there's a lot of money that gets spent that we don't know what happens to it, or it just goes completely just the money is spent so poorly in these very bureaucratic systems. So we really need an education redesign, which is what you were just talking about when you're talking about curriculum planning and things like that. Uh, The way that we educate our students in the United States is really, really antiquated. And uh, I, I will say that from my time in schools as a teacher, I actually didn't see very much waste at all now if you look at like and i'm going to use texas as an example but when you see like a high school in texas building a football stadium that holds twenty thousand people and costs 60 million dollars you think that money might have been better spent on the students and curriculum and stuff like that so there are there there are examples of waste in schools but 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 i think they're much more transparent and easily identifiable but that school also had sixty million spare bucks. So, yeah, but you know, and I guarantee the school can't be all that bad if they're putting in a sixty million dollars stadium for the high school. Uh, you know, so, uh, to so me, that, that's wasteful. That, that's it, completely wasteful. It would be wasteful. It was a shitty school, but I don't. I don't think you see shitty schools doing that. Uh, but I, I think we really need to redesign curriculums, redesign learning styles. Uh, you know, we're not we're not really redesigning learning we're just turning black well, control believe it or not we have because like you'll see like that uh, i don't know like i need to send maybe we can do an episode on dumb questions that k- kids have had on tests or school like there was one i saw which was like it, it was probably like a second or third grade question of like six plus seven write your answer and then exp- and then show your work okay Six, how do you show your work? Yeah, uh, like... <laughs> uh, yeah no, that's uh, but but that's my point is we had this really antiquated system and it's just it's almost compounding on itself in terms of 
idiocracy, like giving giving first graders an hour's worth of homework every night where really in first grade, you don't need an hour's worth of homework. You don't really need more than like 10 to 15 minutes of homework. I mean, you don't really, I mean, you, you don't really need homework at all. You're not learning anything that, that complex in school. Yeah, uh, probably not. And, and at that point it's, it's more socializing. Same thing with like kindergarten, you know, it's more social, social play and socializing uh, than, yeah. than is, you know, learning. I mean, I, I would say, like first grade is where you're going to be getting some very basic math. You're going to start learning how to read. So like there, there's important. There's a little bit. Yeah, there's a little bit. But again, it's you're not getting that deep and that complex. But I think we need to. We need we to really, the next question. Yeah. No, we only got a few minutes left. But I think we need a real redesign on on our school systems. You know, we there's many aspects of the United States that have been picked up from other countries. Uh, we need to really. We need somebody who's really going to get down and dirty and redesign the education system. Uh, and I, I, I just don't think it's just like when we talk about like welfare things and, and a lot of things just need, or public housing, uh, these things need a lot of work because they're, they're pretty shitty. And I don't think uh, our education system is going in the right direction. Have, did you end up reading that uh, coddling of the American mind book by Jonathan Haidt? No, that would be a, that would be a great, a great read. We, we talked about that one episode. I would advise you if you've got some time, pick that up or, or listen to the audiobook. All right, hit the next question. I, I got this window closed here. All right, last question. 20 years ago, 70% of American adults said they were extremely proud to be an American. That number has plummeted to just 39%. In your closing statement tonight, please tell American voters why you're the person who can inspire, inspire this nation to a better day. 20 years ago, 70% of adults said they were proud to be an American. Uh, now it's less than 40% are proud to be Americans. Yes. Uh, so, uh, and we begin with uh, Governor Burgum. Uh, look, we've had a lot of division in this country. That's the, that's the you know, I, I, I hated Trump at first because I was, I was super liberal at the time. Uh, I've grown not so much to, to hate Trump, but just really despise what he did to the country and and, and realize that it wasn't Trump. It was literally just about half the country uh, you know, that, that wanted something like that. But the issue was he was super divisive. And now when you hear someone is a Trump supporter, if you're left leaning, you hate them. And if you are left leaning, and you hear someone, I'm sorry, you know, if, if, if you're a Trump supporter, you hear somebody's left leaning, you hate them. And if you're left leaning, you hear somebody's a Trump supporter, you hate them. So it's, it's, uh, it's making people, politics are making people hate each other. There used to be things that weren't talked about. Religion and politics were a big one, uh, were, were two of them. Um, and, and now it's, it's very public and people develop an opinion based off you right away and it's it's they don't even give you the time of day so you know i think that that trump had a lot to do with that um i don't think biden has helped i don't think he's as bad but he hasn't mended the country um so i think so I he's think, done a little bit but i don't think not done, i don't think he's done anything at all um I, <laughs> at all I, I listened to some of the speeches i don't even understand what he's saying and and it, you know sure maybe some of that's confirmation bias to a degree or, or you know, just mostly what you see in the in the news but i don't see him doing anything competently at all um so so we need a president that is going to that isn't going to be hardline republican of course this is coming from the republican debate that's going to be much closer to the center and if you are a hardline republican you can hate that but just understand that there's at least 50 percent of the population that completely disagrees with you so you need someone that's going to be closer to the center. I think in regards to why we've seen a decline in American pride in the last 20 years, first of all, if we, if we measured 20 years back, that was pretty, like, if sometime in 2003, I'm going to assume that this was when the Iraq war had just started. But we were still pretty fresh off of 9-11, so there was still a considerable amount of national unity because of the shared tragedy that we had, and that really brought people together. 
And I think the Iraq war helped divide the country because we got to see tremendous amount of waste of lives and money on our part for something that didn't really seem worth it. And that division festered and multiplied. And when Obama was president, we got to see a portion of this country. We got to see the racism of this country exposed a little bit more. And when Trump became president, the, the mask was really pulled off. And we, we've gotten to see just how racist this country really is to this day. So, and I think a lot of people are looking you at... You've got to tie this up here. I'm, I am tying this up. All right. I think that by looking at all these things that were there but hidden before, but now that we see... A lot of people are like, it's hard for me to have pride in a country that does all these things. Well, uh, I think the answer is we need somebody who's going to unify the country. And that means it can't be a hard left winger. It can't be Bernie Sanders and it can't be Donald Trump. It needs to be somebody much closer to the center. Uh, On that note, we're out of time. I want to thank you guys for joining. Remind you to subscribe on YouTube and any audio podcast platform. We'll see you guys next time adios this episode i'm thankful it's over with how about you see you uh next time i like pbr i just got priced out of it